Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Women versus Wall Street. Wall Street can be a minefield for any competitive or ambitious person seeking a rewarding career, a name for themselves, and handsome paydays. They quickly find themselves surrounded by other competitive and ambitious people looking for exactly the same things. For women, the challenges can run even deeper, and for them, the world of Wall Street is particularly fraught. To be sure, progress has been made. More women are working than ever before. About 64% of women aged 25 to 54 were employed or seeking jobs in the U.S. in 1980. By early 2023, that figure had jumped to more than 77%. Across the entire universe of S&P 500 companies, women hold about 33% of the board seats. An improvement, of course, but still not on a par with men. Women's pay is about 83% of what men make across the entire U.S. labor market. What's it like to fight through those challenges, especially when your own dreams collide with hurdles? That is, when they collide with men. Joining Crash Course to discuss all of this is Elizabeth Rossiello. Elizabeth is the CEO of Aza Finance, a fintech and forex company based in Nairobi and London. And her path has taken her through Wall Street, crypto, fintech, and Africa. Her story is compelling, not only because she has encountered many of Wall Street's roadblocks, but also got around them by finding her own way in the world as an entrepreneur. Elizabeth, welcome. Thanks for having me. We have so much to talk about, and I think just to set stuff up for our listeners, tell me a little bit about your background, where you were born, your education, and then how you decided to choose a career in finance. Well, it's so nice to speak to someone with a New York accent, because I spent the last (laughs) 20 some odd years away from New York. I'm going to burst your bubble. I'm from Chicago. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's still <laughs> have adapted a bit of a New York accent. Although when you said Chicago, I immediately heard it. But I grew up in Queens, New York. I'm an Italian-American, Italian-Irish mix, which is a New York special. And right. every kid in my elementary school spoke a different language. My neighborhood was full of diaspora that changed every five to six years. So it's funny now, you know, 40 years later that I worked with so many diaspora communities because at the time, every diaspora wave that comes to Queens and then makes enough money and moves out. <laughs> and we kept staying there our whole childhood. So, I mean, I grew up pretty tough and resilient and I saw extremes from the start. You know, I was with the smartest kids at Hunter High School, which is a magnet school in New York. Lin-Manuel Miranda was in my grade. And all these beautiful, smart, amazing kids from all over the city. And you start to think it's normal. So very tough to grow up in a city, be with the most ambitious, best and brightest, and kind of realize you're socioeconomically, you're at the lower end, education-wise, you're at the top end, you know, all over the place in an only a way that I've seen a real American story. 
And I left home pretty quick. I spoke a lot of languages. So I went abroad to Berlin, Germany, and I worked at the Bundestag there as a translator right out of... You're, you're, underser- you're underserving yourself. You spoke a lot of languages. Being able to speak a lot of languages is a talent. How many languages did you have? Then three. Now I picked up another one in addition to English. Italian, German, English, and Swahili? Are those the four? And French. And I think what was interesting is that, you know, when you're a nomad and you're an observer, you don't ever really fit in and you get used to not expecting to fit in. And I think that definitely helped me later on in life as a female in finance and as a female entrepreneur in the venture space and crypto. I never really expected to fit in. And I think I felt like that really protected me because, you know, I expect the worst. I trust no one (laughs) and I'm grateful for what I get. Nomad is also a great word. <laughs> it's a mindset as much as it's a location. How does a nomad end up in the world of finance? How did you decide that that was the place for you? So I went abroad to Germany and I was working in economic research. I was really interested in politics as an undergrad. I was working at the SPD party at the time. So Schroeder's party with the Social Democrats in Germany were trying to bring along a sort of like socialist capitalism to Europe just as the euro was forming and the EU was coming together. So it was a very interesting time. But when I went back to graduate school at Columbia at the School of International Affairs, I realized, how is everybody going to pay for their education? (laughs) All these glamorous, beautiful people are going to work in the UN with $100,000 loans on their back. So I went into finance, really to finance my own education. And I kept going at the job fairs, sneaking into the job fairs at the business school because I heard those summer internships got paid more money and I had a huge student loan on my back. So it was really, you know, a lack of privilege to who was going to pay for my graduate school that got me in there. And are we talking like the late 90s at that point, the mid to late 90s or? 2003. 2003. So early knots. And so you get your degree and then you go to Wall Street? So I did a summer credit suite, but between my two graduate school years, I snuck in. Since I was only 22 when I went to grad school, I was a bit of a nerd. I was too young to go into the associate program, but kind of too old to go into the analyst program. So I went in as a senior analyst with a grad degree and had traveled abroad. And everybody else in my class was somebody's child. So already I realized I had to work a lot harder. And I think there were two kids who were not white and one kid who was not wealthy. (laughs) And that was me. And I'm still good friends with the Ethiopian American who was in my class and we had it rough and we realized that from the start and we talked about it a lot. So I think, you know, when you're coming in and you're not accepted, at least have like an island of safety. You and your friend were both outsiders for different reasons. Your friend because of race and you because of income, class, or was it because you were a woman? Was it a combination of all of those things? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, when I finally got in, I think one of the head of sales trading called me into the office. He said, you know, you've been offered a full-time position. It's like the Super Bowl. Your parents would be so proud. You know, almost made me cry in the glass office, like as if I was subservient. And then I remember thinking, my parents have six graduate degrees between them. I have two degrees. You, like, I don't even know if you passed any class in your whole life, you know. But the privilege was really a shock to me because, yes, I had traversed from Queens to Hunter, but everybody there was a nerd. So we were joined at that. Here it was really like, I didn't realize you could be successful at life just on pure privilege alone. I knew privileged smart kids before, but I didn't know just pure privileged people. So that was like, you know, a, a very big shock to me. And there was a lot of talk about it. Plus, of course, you know, I was young, I was cute, I was in shape. So you're constantly being harassed. It's very confusing for 
females in finance. It might promote it because of my hair color, the way I look, because I smiled at someone, because I didn't smile at someone. But I became acutely aware in a way that I hadn't been before about my level of privilege. But you hung in there. Well, I had, I had student loans to pay. So yes. <laughs> you had student loans to pay. So the money was good and it was paying off your loans. And I presume you were learning things too, that even if they were hard fought lessons, they were things that sort of stood you well in some of your later career choices, right? Yeah, hundred percent. And I had, um, there was one MD who reached out, Phil Vassan, who himself was a bit of an outsider, who then went on to lead that whole private bank at Credit Suisse. He was also from Queens and Catholic. And he kind of was like, you speak German, I'm going to send you to Switzerland. And again, differentiate myself and get out of there. And that's what I did. I did a fellowship in between and that I went for the Robert Bosch program, which was this incredible fellowship that sent me to Germany for a year. I delayed going into Wall Street. And then I went into the Zurich office and I spent two years as my analyst between London and Zurich covering German speaking Europe. If I knew that I wasn't privileged in other ways, I just tried to use my wits, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> to get through it. And then you moved on to Goldman Sachs for a spell, right? Oh, yeah. Before that, I went to Goldman for an analyst summer also in Frankfurt. And that was 66 men and me. And <laughs> so many weird things happened being a female there, being a foreigner there. And it gets really mixed up. Is it because I'm a female? Is it because I'm an American? Is it because I'm young? Is it because I have red hair? You know, is it because I speak these languages? And it really just makes you doubt who you are in a way that you wouldn't if you were a man. All these extra variables constantly come into play. And I think I called Phil Vassan and I said, I can't stand it. I want to come back to Credit Suisse. And he said, all right, let's do it. You have to come into prime brokerage. I said, no problem. And I said, can I stay in Europe? And that's when I started the position full-time in Zurich. So again, I found an ally. And a man, by the way, who was an ally. I'm not excusing all the men out there who make it hard, but for the ones who stand up in the workplace, it's valuable, especially for people who feel like outsiders. You're in trade five, basically, at Credit Suisse, right? And you decide then ultimately to leave Credit Suisse and you join Planet Finance as a consultant, correct? Yes, it's super interesting because I was working with alternative investment managers at the time. Back then, alternative was not that alternative. Investing in hedge fund was like a big step for a lot of family offices and private wealth managers. And I was visiting all over Switzerland and Europe. And I'm like, what are they afraid to invest in? What is their risk profile? What do they need to see? And then on the other side, you see all the hedge fund managers come in, you know, with the same strategies, thinking that they're the only one unique in town. Meanwhile, you see 10 of the exact same people the whole week on their own roadshows. And you start to realize what is differentiation in the financial sector? Is it real? Is it reputation? What do you decide to invest in? Are you investing on fundamentals? Are you investing on trust? It was a very interesting couple of years learning about that and observing it, right? Because I'm not the one making the investment decision. I don't look or act like any of these people. And you're kind of linking them all together. And I was just in the corner kind of witnessing it. And when I finally put off my student loan, my last payment, I told Phil I was leaving. And he said, you just won your first test against Wall Street. He said, no. And you have the power to decide what your career looks like. And I had done that a few times before when I said, let's wait for a year while I do the fellowship. No, I want to go to Goldman. No, I want to come back. You know, really deciding what your fate is. And usually when you're not in a position of privilege, complete privilege, you feel the need to just say yes. And so I would say that I must have been somewhere higher on the privilege ladder, even if I came from Queens or my parents were quite educated. So I did believe in myself enough to say no. And I think that's a really important point. And a lot of people at the time thought that they was only one path in life. And, you know, later on in the crypto community, 
or a lot of the people that I met doing entrepreneurship down in Africa, they said no to everything. And they were, you know, really stepping outside the box. It's stepping outside the box and saying yes to your own experiences. So many people who come from outside want to be that Connecticut kid. They want to have the same suit and tie. They want to look like the hedge fund manager that just walked out of the office. They want to come in and say the exact same thing. That's the target. That's the goal for a lot of people. And you're thinking, I just saw 30 hedge fund managers that are identical. (laughs) And there's always more that want to enter in. And you think, you know, how do you decide to do that? Are you afraid of taking a risk outside the box? I think, you know, we met a couple of traders or a couple of managers who really went outside and we saw those kind of outsized returns. So for me, it was really risk reward. And when I met Mohammed Yunus's team and they had just won the Nobel Peace Prize in microfinance, he was like, you can do finance in markets where you might not have before. It might not look the same, but it can look different. You can adapt it. And so that was like the first step outside. So let me just stop for a minute and tell listeners who Muhammad Yunus is. He founded a Bangladesh-based bank, Grameen Bank, that invented essentially microfinance, which was a way to use very small business loans to small companies and small companies, literally sometimes just single entrepreneurs in developing countries as a path toward economic development with the idea that if you seed a bunch of small businesses, it creates larger economic momentum and can liberate people from destitution in developing countries. I think Grameen then became Planet Finance at part of a larger coalition. And then you essentially intersected with them as a consultant, right? And how did you meet Eunice? Well, I met him at a conference, but he founded many companies. He did a a joint venture with Danone Yogurt to do a low-cost, high-nutritious meal. He did one with Adidas to do a shoe that was under a dollar. He's basically traveling the world talking about how we do social enterprise, which is what he came up with after microfinance. And one of the things he did was with his French politician, Jacques Attali, he created Planet Finance, which was a group of companies working in forwarding microfinance around the world. And I was part of the rating agency. And they sent me down to Nairobi to lead the Sub-Saharan African office. So I was doing ratings on microfinance. And one of the most important concepts, which is very similar to the crypto community, is if somebody's excluded from the financial system, and not just because they're impoverished, maybe because they live in Venezuela, or maybe because they are a Nigerian diaspora in New Jersey, and they're very smart, and they're very wealthy, but their parents don't have a 30-year mortgage. You know, there's a lot of reasons people are excluded from the traditional financial system. You don't want to just wave your hand. But if you look at their circle of trust, their community, you say, well, this is where this guy went to school. This is where this guy did an internship. This is where this guy did a summer program. All of a sudden, you see his credit worthiness. And we're missing out on financial products and financial growth and economic growth from communities whose circle of trust we don't understand. And you know, as a foreigner, when I was in Nairobi, I couldn't open up a local account. I couldn't get a loan, but clearly I was credit worthy. So how do you develop that? And then with the crypto community as well, people felt excluded. And then inside the crypto community, they developed products that showed trust. So I think it was very interesting for me. And I worked for seven years in this sector. I would rate the banks and then I would work with the regulators on the policies on how to regulate it. And I think this is around 2009. And you think you're going to be in Nairobi for a year and then end up somewhere in the Asia Pacific region. But lo and behold, you stay in Nairobi semi-permanently and get down another path yet again. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was just such an exciting time to be in Kenya. M-Pesa had just been launched two years prior. That was the first globally implemented mobile money program. 
And because of the government support and the monopoly the telco had on the market, it became universally accepted to the point where they think informally it's like 97% of the economy uses it. At one point, all of the major banks were transacting on it. And financial inclusion went from below 30% to above 75% in just a few years because of this program. It empowered people to use their mobile phone for payments and loans and money transfers and every activity that once was in the confines of a brick and mortar branch. Or not, or cash, yeah. Or cash, but it now could be contained in a mobile phone. And you see this going on and you think to yourself, what? I see this going on and I see all these cool young entrepreneurs being like, oh, well, let me do M-Pesa for business. Let me do M-Pesa for health. Let me add on to this incredible product that revolutionized the way we think about using money and the way we think about an entire ecosystem using the same interchangeable technology. I mean, back home, my dad would use a paper check. My mom would use a debit card. I would have a credit card, you know. You've never before seen an entire family, an entire country all use the same method. There were so many cool products to be built on top of that. And I joined actually a lot of entrepreneurs that were building on top of that. And I started a company called BitPesa. Elizabeth, before you talk to me about a competitor to M-Pesa or maybe the complimentary service to M-Pesa that you invented, I want to take a short break to hear from our sponsors and we'll come right back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're back with Elizabeth Rossiello, the CEO of Aza Finance, a fintech and forex company based in Nairobi and London. Elizabeth, you were talking to me about this revelatory moment for you when you had moved to Nairobi to both carve out your own path and escape some of the male-dominated confines of Western finance. And you're inspired by M-Pesa, a mobile payments device, and that encourages you to start up your own company in 2013. Is that where we are at that point? There was one little pit between them. I was working in microfinance and then I got pregnant and I found it really hard to keep getting employed while pregnant. This is another issue for women in the workplace, parenting and pregnancies, right? In a way, and it just affects women in a much more significant way, obviously physically, but professionally than it affects men. And that's another thing, another hurdle women in the workplace have to overcome is figuring out how to balance motherhood with their own professional aspirations. Well, forget even that before you get there, how to balance other people's perceptions of it. So I had a group of friends who were mainly male who were all starting companies and traveling around just like I was. I traveled every month to a new country. I would meet with the Mozambican regulator one week and the Nigerian regulator the next week. And then all of a sudden I get pregnant and everybody's eyes changed. Nobody saw me the same. I was no longer Elizabeth, the expert on microfinance. I was the pregnant girl. And when I would go up for jobs, people wanted to meet for lunch. They wanted all my contact list. They wanted my insight. They wanted my due diligence. But then nobody was offering me contracts anymore. And I was very confused at first. And even behind my back, my male friends would say, oh, by the way, she's pregnant. I actually ended a few friendships over. It was very surprising to me. 
you know, you think you leave all that when you go into an alternative space where everybody's quite open, working in social empowerment, working for development, and then they have the same sexist ways as the kids from Connecticut at the investment bank. I was really like, wow, even in development finance, you're working for a female empowerment fund and you're secretly whispering to someone not to hire me because I'm pregnant. It was very blatant and it was very surprising and I was shocked by it. So it was really, really rough. And I found that really only my female friends hired me after my first child was born. And I worked for a lot of female friends who were working in this space. And when I had my second child, same thing happened. And I went up for the same job that my ex-husband was going for at the World Bank. And they kept asking me, you know, do you have kids? I was like, not only do I have kids, I have the exact same kids as he does. (laughs) Literally the same kids. And of course, he got the job and I didn't. And I was two years older and had two more years experience. I'd worked in investment banking and he had it. So it was just, it was crazy to me how blatant it was. But in the society there, I think it was just accepted. And women talked about it like, yeah, of course. Well, what do you expect? So I took a bit more of a matter of fact approach about it. Like, well, I guess this is what it is. And what do I expect? And if I want something different, I have to work harder. So I ended up starting the company because I was struggling to get a long-term contract. And I talked a lot about it with my female friends and my co-founder at the time, Charlene Chen, came on a few months after I started and she too was struggling to get contracts because of that. And we would talk a lot about our male friends who would, you know, eat dinner with us and talk shop with us, but then not hire us or not want to work with us. And once we started, we saw a lot of, you know, nasty things said about us. And I think it was just really surprising. It was almost like up until that point, it was under the hood. And at a certain point, everybody felt like they could just say it to your face. What was very interesting was COVID happened. And I became a single mother right after I had my third child. And I just had no choice anymore. I couldn't hide it. I was nursing a baby on Zoom, talking to shareholders. I was like, it's all out of the bag at this point. And it just was very freeing because I had no choice. I think I started to realize that despite all my attempts to be radical, it takes a lifetime to shake the things that we're taught. Again, you're at this inflection point. It's a different place. You're no longer in at Credit Suisse or Goldman. You're in a different country, you know, engaged with a different branch of financial services, different kind of financial service. And you hit what could be a roadblock, but you don't ultimately back down. Well, at the same time, what am I going to do? I'm unemployed in Kenya with two kids, with a foreign husband who I don't have a passport with. I'm 3,000 million miles from my family. So, you know, I have no choice. And I look around and there's a woman balancing three infants selling tomatoes sitting on the floor. And I think, who the hell am I to complain? And then I realized there's always someone with less privilege. So even if you think you're underprivileged, guess what? (laughs) Usually you're at the top of the ladder somewhere. So I think it just put things into perspective in a crystal clear way. Get back to work. And so out of that comes BitPesa the company you found in 2013. Yeah, and it was ahead of its time and just on time. It was doing a Bitcoin to Kenyan shilling, and the idea was we would use it as an intermediary for remittances, Bitcoin as an intermediary currency or something. And then you ride the Bitcoin wave to great effect for a number of years until the Melty arrives, essentially, right? You even had a partnership with FTX. Yeah, I mean, I wish it had been one wave. It was more like a brief wave, several droughts, a couple of doldrums, <laughs> a few thunderstorms, and we very quickly, two years in, went into TradFi. So we were trading regular foreign exchange pairs as well because it just wasn't a business model. 
but yes, for 10 years now, we've been running this business. We rebranded several years ago because the West African customers and team didn't like the East African name of PESA, which means money. And we created ASA. And I think every time we hit a snag, we just figured out how to keep going. So you renamed BitPESA ASA to capture two things, better branding, but also the fact that you were no longer just doing crypto and not just doing Kenya. You were doing wide Forex, buying, settling, and selling African currencies for businesses across the continent. Even now, people try to say, oh, this little cute company from Kenya, but actually we're the largest non-bank broker on the continent. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to believe. Even, you know, this week I was at some place and they're like, you, how old are you? You know, your voice is so high. How could you be a CEO? Or like all these crazy things people say to me. And we're like, yeah, well, we trade, you know, $5 billion a year. The other thing to remember when you're setting up a currency exchange like yours is it's an indispensable service to innumerable businesses across Africa who have all sorts of trouble settling their own accounts if they're carrying euros and they're carrying dollars in their own accounts to make foreign payments and they're exposed to interest rate risk and settlement risk and all other sorts of problems that weren't intermediated prior to Aza Finance coming on the scene. At one point when we started, I think 80% of African currency pairs against hard currencies were being routed through two correspondent banks, Sanchart and Deutsche. And so few global brokers were making a market in these currency pairs. Even now, we're one of the only brokers that does pan-African pairs. Yes, you can find South African Rand against Sterling, but it's really hard to find Central African Franc against West African Franc, Nigerian Naira against Guinean City. It's still today hard. Nobody wanted to do something different. And even the African banks we saw wanted to mimic the European banks. That's another three podcasts why they do that. But I mean, how do we really do something in a different way? How do we not only step outside the norm, but we then keep iterating. And once we get successful, you don't go back and buy the house in Connecticut. You keep investing in innovation. Another part of your journey that I think is amazing is that as you carved out a path for yourself through your work and through your platform, you also created opportunities for other people. And you did it on the ground in Africa in a profound way. How many people do you employ now? 200. We had 240 when we started the partnership with FCX. And then after they imploded and we had been building for them some products, we had to let about 30 people go, which was tough and get lean. But we feel lucky that we survived that partnership. And didn't wind up with any reputational damage given what happened to FTX. Yeah. But I mean, over the years, it's been a few of them. There's been a couple of African startups that have gone out. There's been a couple of crypto companies that went out. And, you know, we just try to keep our own reputation, keep our own feet on the ground. It's been very difficult to raise money, as you can imagine. 2% of venture financing goes towards females. Even less goes towards females in Africa. I'm lucky because I'm not an African female. And sometimes when investors look me in the face, I might look like a female they might have known once. <laughs> and so they might hear my voice in a slightly different way or whatever the Harvard research says about how uh, people make decisions. Do you think it's ironic that Africa, a continent that has centuries of racial and economic and cultural oppression on its back, that it's still struggling to get past? that that's the continent that ended up being more liberating for you as a woman in finance than developed markets might have been? 
it's a very entrepreneurial place. East Africa and West Africa specifically where I've done the most work. It's different in Southern Africa, I would say. But in Nigeria, I feel quite at home. It's almost like New York in the way that people work together across cultures to do business. In Kenya, there is quite a history of tribal communities or people hiring offices of their own tribe. So that felt a little triggering to me <laughs> from Wall Street. And in Senegal, of course, it's incredibly religious. And a lot of my male counterparts or clients won't shake your hand or even want to be in a room with you. It's very religious there. So every country had its own challenges. I love doing business in Nigeria and Ghana. It's Anglophone West African culture where I find it very entrepreneurial, very open, very welcoming less restrictive in terms of where you're from. And I think there are places around the world, even if they're very far from your home, that might have cultural similarities, especially in the way of doing business. And even though, you know, might be on the other side of the planet, you really look to the fundamentals. How do they establish trust in the culture? How open are they to new entrants? How willing are they to think outside the box? What's their risk appetite? What's the level of context they need in decision making? And I think that's what I look for now when I go to a new place to do business. On that note, I'm going to take another break. Elizabeth, we'll hear from a sponsor and we'll come right back. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And we're back with Elizabeth Rossiello, a fintech entrepreneur and a very interesting financial pioneer. She's the CEO of Aza Finance, a fintech and forex company based in Nairobi and London. We've been talking a lot about your own exploits and successes, as well as the challenges you face as a woman in a male-dominated industry. We talked about some of those factors, just you know, the blatant sexism that men carry in with them into workplaces, everything that happens around motherhood and pregnancies and raising children. I wondered about a third factor in all of this, which is advocacy. You seem to me to be a very, almost a natively well-skilled self-advocate. Do you think being an advocate for themselves and self-advocacy in the workplace remains a challenge for women as well in terms of getting ahead, getting promoted, getting proper compensation, et cetera, et cetera? A hundred percent. And it's true. I think I have less nerve endings than other people <laughs> at this point. And <laughs> that lets me keep going after, you know, you get slapped with these comments people make. I think we were at a meeting the other day and someone said, I can't imagine you hugging your children. You're so good at business. And I was like, <laughs> you know, done for a little bit. And I've repeated that quite a few times. And this is a peer my age, my age in an innovative startup culture talking about empowering females. And he said this in front of several people, you know, that's one of the milder comments I get. I just get it constantly. And it's very hard to keep going when you hear these things. And luckily I have a team around me who sees it. And my CFO came from traditional finance and he had never really worked with women before. And I don't think he believed me when I told him stories, but just going to meetings with me, he's coming out like, can't believe they said that. 
And now when I start to talk back and advocate for myself, he's joining me. And I think you can take it in two ways. It can be crushing, you know, and that's fair. Not everybody should have burnt nerve endings. But I think when I talk back and when I advocate, I almost get more of it. So it is hard to draw the line. Do I want this partner or do I want to stand up for myself? Do I want this person on my board because of their network? Or do I not want to be sexually harassed at dinner every time I go to dinner with them? You know, it's like, that's just a general tough decision on how to lead your life that a lot of women in finance or not have to deal with. And I think I've chosen to speak up at least at this part of my life for many reasons. You know, one of my junior team members a few years ago had an unfortunate incident on a sales meeting. And I not only spoke up, I called the CEO of the bank. I got the compliance team involved. I got their internal audit involved and I tried to advocate for her. And I think that's all we really can do if we want to keep going to break the cycle. You and I first intersected at a conference in Marrakesh, a Bloomberg conference, and you were on a paddle talking about talent hubs. And that was one of the things that made a light bulb go off in my head as I was sitting in the audience learning from you. And one of the focuses of that conversation were, were talent hubs in Africa. And part of the discussion turned toward Andela in Lagos. Nigeria, Andela is, I think, probably the first serious coding academy on the African continent. And students came out of that being able to demand much higher salaries than young Africans were used to demanding in the workplace. And you really focused on the idea of how important talent hubs are. And I thought to myself, that really intersects in a way as well with your own experience, because a talent hub is essentially trying to force a mentoring device into a culture or into an economy or into a location that ideally provides opportunity for people who are still sorting out how to grasp opportunity. Does your experience as a woman in finance and a woman encountering the various challenges you've had, but also finding mentors who went out of their way to help you, does that inform your philosophy about the importance of talent hubs in Africa? Well, I think it informs my philosophy that you don't have to look and act and be from with the same parents as everybody you think you do to be successful. And success can come from all sorts of places. Credit-worthy people can come from all sorts of places and talent can come from anywhere. And if you take that shade off your eyes about what it looks like, what talent is supposed to look like, their resume, their hairstyle, their accents. The color of their skin. Yeah, how high-pitched their voice is. I can't tell you how many idiots told me I need voice training early in my career. (laughs) So like, I think what I've been a little hard to see is that some of the successful peers I had, even in Accra, in Lagos, in Nairobi, these guys that started out with me, once they get a little success, they move back to the U.S. Or they get the cars and the political appointees and they act like the people we were trying to rebel against. That's the history of time of humans all over the world. But I do hope that once we realize we don't have to be like the people before us, we can be radical and be successful. We kind of stay radical. Because Crash Course is about learning things, what have you learned if you look back at the Elizabeth Rossiello, who was in grad school in New York and the accomplished woman right now who's in both Nairobi and London making a career and a life for herself. What have you learned? Boundaries. And just don't let people and thoughts and ideas and funds and stakeholders who don't share your values 
live rent free in your brain. You know, <laughs> like if they don't share your values, don't let them into your vision. You got to just believe in your vision, get people around you who believe in that vision, live your values on what you want to do, what you want to build, who you want to be. And if the people come in and it looks like you have to follow them, don't do it. You don't. You make the rules of your own life. And there's so many paths to success. People get pressured to replicate a path they've seen somewhere else. And it takes a lot of bravery not to do that. And I work on finding that every morning. What a nice note to end a podcast on. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that boundaries shouldn't hold you back, that you can create your own paths, even if you feel like you're being told no, and you can get ahead to some extent on your own, but you also need to get by with a little help from your friends. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Moses Andam, Anna Mazarakis, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Crocott, Mike Nitza, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.